This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce, host of Workers' Comp Matters. I'm an attorney at Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, and we're bringing you another edition of Workers' Comp Matters with guest Michael Gruber. Before we get into our topic with Michael, we want to thank our sponsor, Case Pacer Practice Management Software, dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And our other sponsor we'd like to thank is PI Now. Find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PINow.com to learn more. Today's guest is Michael Gruber. Michael is a partner, and I'm going to take a deep breath, in the law firm of Pasternak, Tilker, Ziegler, Walsh, Stanton, and Romano, LLP, in New York City and uh, other satellite offices. I believe Michael is a partner in their Brooklyn office. Michael is a graduate of Michigan State. He earned his uh, JD degree from the University of Denver College of Law. He's been a workers' comp lawyer for over 20 years. In addition to litigating workers' comp claims, he oversees the workers' compensation appellate division practice at the firm, and he has been a member and leader in a variety of local and national bar associations and professional groups. Most recently, he just completed a very successful term as president of Willig, which is the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. So uh, with that having been said, I'd like to welcome Michael to Workers' Comp Matters. Welcome. Thank you very much, Alan. It is a pleasure to be here. All right. So you practice in New York, and um, I've been reading online a variety of posts about some recent somewhat controversial changes that are being proposed to the workers' comp statute in New York. And I know you and your firm, uh, representing the interests of injured workers, have taken a pretty vocal stand. Why don't you give our listeners an overview of what's been proposed and the status of these possible changes? So in New York, have, as many states do, a variety of types of benefits that are available to injured workers. One of the benefits we have here in New York is for extremity injuries, uh, injuries to arms, legs, way down to the fingers and the toes. And we have what are called schedule loss of use awards for permanent injuries to those extremities, uh, for injuries to the extremities. These are types of awards that you can get regardless of whether or not you miss a day from work. In New York, for injuries to your neck, your back, your head, You have to be out of work in order to get any monetary benefits. But for any injury to an extremity that results in a permanent injury, you are entitled to a monetary award. Now, the value of the extremity, for lack of a better way to put it, is statutory. Uh, The value of an arm is in our statute. It's 312 weeks, uh, leg 288 weeks. It goes all the way down to the fingers and the toes. So... In April of 2017, as part of the negotiations over the New York State budget, several workers' compensation changes were passed as part of the budget. And the vast majority of these were detrimental to injured workers. And 
one of these changes was for the governor's office to direct the workers' compensation to update the permanency guidelines, uh, meaning that the board was directed to change not the value of the extremity, because that's statutory and it would have to be done legislatively as opposed to through the budget, but how the award for permanency is determined. And the language was pretty specific in the budget and in the surrounding uh, documentation from the budget. And the board was supposed to update these guidelines. They were last updated, I believe, in 1974, so it was probably time for them to be updated. But they were supposed to update these guidelines to reflect, and I'm quoting, advances in modern medicine that enhance healing and result in better outcomes. So they were supposed to take into account modern medical techniques, uh, what has changed over the last 30-some-odd years, and update how the impairment determinations were decided by the doctors. So on September 1st, the board issued their proposed guidelines. And it will tell you what the board thought of these things when you find out that the board issued these in a press release on the Friday before Labor Day in the afternoon, where all news goes to die, obviously. Uh, so they knew these were going to be a problem, and I, I think that's why they uh, put them out when they did. And they gave a commentary period for all parties who wished to weigh in on these new proposed guidelines, uh, which just recently ended on October 23rd. Now, the problem we have with these guidelines is that they don't take into account the governor's mandate to reflect advances in modern medicine. The board, as part of their uh, research and their process in coming up with these new proposed guidelines, uh, indicates that they consulted with all relevant stakeholders. I can tell you that they didn't consult with injured workers, uh, and they really didn't consult with labor at all. I'm fairly confident that the people they consulted with most were the business council, but they did also consult with the New York Society of Orthopedic Surgeons. They had actually been consulting with the New York Society of Orthopedic Surgeons for quite some time in their efforts to revise these guidelines, even before the governor's budget had been passed. And it turns out that the board got some recommendations from the orthopedic surgeons on what exactly has changed in modern medicine that would update these permanencies, and then proceeded to ignore everything that the orthopedic surgeon told them should be put into these guidelines. Now, the only reason that we know this is because the Assembly Democrats uh, held hearings on this, and they called the Workers' Compensation Board general counsel and some of the medical directors on the Workers' Compensation Board in to testify before the New York State Assembly. And it was very enlightening. It basically shed light on a process that was very secretive in nature. That's the problem a lot of us had with the process that the board used. And it wasn't very open. It wasn't very transparent. And it seems like that only one side of the equation had into uh, what these updated impairment guidelines should be. As you well know, Alan, workers' compensation is predicated by its very nature on the bargain between labor and business. 
and when uh, is at the bargaining table and the other side is not, uh, it leads to inequities. And that's what we saw in these new proposed guidelines. It, again, they didn't, they didn't reflect any modern advances. What they did was they basically, they basically just reduced what would sort of be considered medically normal values uh, for range of motion, which a lot of these awards are predicated on. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, medically, range of motion for a shoulder in elevation has been 180 degrees. As long as I can remember, it has. The board now considers forward elevation of 160 to be normal. Normal range of motion in knee, uh, they consider normal to be 105 degrees, uh, where normally it would be much greater than that. Now, advances in modern medicine, Alan, don't make range of motion in in a shoulder to become less. Advances in modern medicine should mean that most people should have greater range of motion after a course of treatment as opposed to lesser range of motion. So actually what you're describing, I know that in New York, correct me if I'm wrong, your impairment ratings are not based on the, what I guess I'll say, the controversial sixth edition of the AMA guides. But when the AMA guides were revised in the sixth edition, maybe five or six years ago, the reduction in impairment ratings was attributed also to improvements in medical outcomes and uh, medical treatment processes. And of course, around the country where those guidelines were challenged, uh, basically the same arguments were mounted that you know certain things don't change. So where is this left? You indicated the comment period is just about over. Is this going to be voted on by your assembly? Do you expect it to be signed by the governor? What's your prediction? It's actually regulatory, Alan. It's not, it's not something that's done legislatively, which is part of the problem. Uh, the board has the authority to modify these guidelines. They have the authority to do so. Uh, and what happened when we first got to read these guidelines and the AFL-CIO and other labor unions got to read these guidelines, and I think some of the medical providers got to read these proposed guidelines, is that there was a tremendous backlash mm-hmm. because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And so uh, labor unions uh, mobilized their forces, claimants, attorneys mobilized their clients who would be directly impacted by these slashes to their potential awards. And I think the board received a lot of negative publicity because of the uh, draconian uh, nature of these cuts to benefits. Again, the assembly hearings uh, put a lot of pressure on the board because that got the legislators who theoretically had signed off on this change during the budget negotiations saying, wait a minute, this is not what we signed up for. This is not what we told you to do. So right now, there has been no resolution of this issue. The comment period ended on October 23rd. What the board says it's going to do is going to uh, look at all the comments they receive, weigh whether or not the comments have any validity, and then decide whether or not the proposed regulations will be implemented or whether or not they will be revised. And again, a lot of the legislators are asking for a lot more information. And you're right in terms of what we use in terms of our impairment guidelines. We are not an AMA guideline state. We have developed our own impairment guidelines, our own permanency guidelines. 
All right. I think this might be an appropriate place to take a break. And in fact, it may dovetail very neatly to what I think we're going to come back to after the break and discuss constitutional challenges to workers' comp statutes and perhaps how this scenario that's evolving in New York might possibly uh, result in something similar. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Mike Gruber in just a few minutes. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, Case Pacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see Case Pacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. And we're back with guest Michael Gruber from the great state of New York. Michael, we left off discussing the regulatory changes that might be expected in one fashion or another in New York. Let's shift gears a little bit. I know we've done other programs featuring guests who are claimant attorneys from around the country that belong to an organization that is obviously near and dear to my heart, which is the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, otherwise known as Willig. You just finished a term as president, and I know Willig, which encompasses attorneys from around the country, looks at workers' comp in a broad sense. And uh, I'd like you to perhaps update our listeners as to what some of the national issues that might affect local states and local jurisdictions that are happening that uh, practitioners, no matter where you practice, need to be aware of? No problem, Alan, certainly. So you've traveled the country in your year. I, I did. And Willig is, is just as near and dear to my heart uh, as it is to yours. Uh, the year I spent as president of Willig was exceptionally fulfilling. And there's a couple things going on around the country that I think are going to be significant issues nationally in workers' compensation in in, in several states over the next year or so, or even farther into the future. And the biggest picture item is the continued utilization of constitutional challenges to stop the race to the bottom further workers' compensation reform, or deform, as uh, we generally like to call it, since every single reform measure seems to negatively impact injured workers. And several states over the past year, or even longer than that, but especially in the past year or so, have been successful in challenging their workers' compensation statutes, either in whole or in part, using uh, provisions of their state uh, constitution. It goes back to Florida a couple of years ago with their challenges to attorneys' fees and limitations on temporary disability benefits. Uh, the most recent one is... Uh, a decision in Alabama from earlier in the year, uh, Clower v. Caremark, uh, where the attorneys there used 
three types of constitutional challenges. One, an equal protection argument. Uh, they used a due process argument. They also used a separation of powers argument to strike down attorney's fees provisions, limits on the amount of benefits, uh, benefit caps in Alabama. And one of the significant things about the Alabama decision is that Alabama has a non-severability clause, which means that once one provision of the workers' compensation statute was found to be unconstitutional, the entire statute was therefore deemed to be unconstitutional. And just recently, in the last month or so, the Alabama State Bar has put together a panel of attorneys of both claimant's side and the carrier's or employer's side uh, to try to come up with a reasonable solution to their workers' compensation problem now that their statute has been declared unconstitutional. And the reason that this is important is because this is the first chance at meaningful workers' compensation reform on the injured workers' side in more than a quarter century. So these types of challenges uh, that have been going on in Florida, in Alabama, in Utah, in Pennsylvania, I think we're going to see a lot more of these challenges. And I think the reason that you're seeing these challenges, Alan, is because the traditional method for labor, for injured workers, to effectuate workers' compensation change is the legislative process. But that is increasingly across the country becoming dominated by business interests in each state. You know, it, it's a generalization I know, but it seems to be true that where Republicans control all parts of the state government, business interest seems to be ascendant over those of injured workers. Not necessarily true, as we're finding out here in New York, but it, it's a pretty consistent pattern across the country. So the traditional avenues for injured workers to try to stop bad changes from workers' compensation in, in becoming law is being foreclosed. And so we are going to have to try to come up with new and novel or different arguments or different venues in order to try to regain some adequate level of benefits for injured workers across the country. So that's really by far the biggest picture item. Yeah. And in fact, I think you can add Oklahoma uh, to the list. Sure. I think New Mexico in terms of including farm workers or agricultural workers. Um, you're right. You know, you, we can battle the legislature year in and year out and effectively not get anywhere or not make the progress we used to make, we being those of us who are on the side of the working man and woman. Yet the courts, when issues are framed, as you put it, equal protection, due process, there's an underlying foundation to these constitutional claims, which is, in a sense, a breach of contract. You mentioned it earlier during the first part of this program, where you talk about a contract between labor and management in exchange for losing the tort remedy, you gain the workers' comp remedy. So when that bargain has been struck and the benefits uh, have been established, and then there is a consistent whittling away of those benefits, a takeaway uh, without a a valid reason other than uh, saving payroll and expense, you reach a period of imbalance. And if the legislature doesn't respond to it because of the political pressures, you have the courts that, while courts, you can argue, may be political, I would argue they are less political than a legislature. So, for example, let's take your regulatory change in New York 
and uh, let's assume that your agency uh, reads but doesn't pay attention to the comments and they ignore the mandate of the budget process to base their reduction of ranges of motion or impairment rating simply in an arbitrary method without taking into an account uh, medical science, and you can't fight City Hall, so to speak, do you envision that could create a scenario that one might raise a constitutional challenge? Potentially, Alan, potentially. And I apologize for leaving Oklahoma out of it. I know that you've had Bob Burke and, and probably several people talking about the opt-out decisions, which is why I didn't want to go into that. But I, in a speech I gave in Montana recently, I called the Vasquez decision in Oklahoma on opt-out probably the single most important uh, workers' compensation decision of the past 20 years because it didn't end the opt-out threat, but it put a serious damper in the momentum of the opt-out threat throughout the southeastern part of the United States. But with respect to your question about New York, the problem is, is this is not a legislative issue. This is a regulatory issue. So if there's going to be a challenge that we can mount to that, it might not be a constitutional issue. Uh, if it is, it probably would fall under the due process part of our uh, Constitution. Uh, because as I said, a lot of this was done in secret. A lot of this was done uh, behind closed doors and without any input from all of the relevant stakeholders. Uh, so it might be a, um, a due process issue. Yeah. Give us an overview, if you could, of some of the other issues that uh, are resonating across the country. A couple things. Uh, one, I think medical marijuana will be a big issue across the country. As marijuana becomes uh, legalized in the states, both on a medical basis as well as a recreational basis, uh, the question will arise as to whether or not, since it is still illegal on a federal level, state workers' compensation boards or agencies will require uh, workers' compensation insurance companies to pay for it as a valid medical treatment. I know here in New York, uh, our workers' compensation agency has said they will not make the workers' compensation carriers pay for it, while well, in other states uh, that has been ruled differently. Secondly, I think immigration issues, uh, given the current uh, attitude in Washington and the increased emphasis on immigration and the deportation of undocumented workers, I think benefits for undocumented workers is going to be a hot topic in the next year or so. We have already seen in the past year, since uh, the new administration has come into the White House, several of our colleagues across the country express uh, reservations about filing claims for undocumented workers. And I think there was a ProPublica article that was uh, published recently detailing the situation in Florida where uh, an undocumented worker gets hurt and all of a sudden the employer miraculously discovers that they've hired a person who is not in the country legally and calls immigration on them and they get deported. Mm -hmm. The third one, I think, is Healthcare. Again, we're just sort of learning how the ACA interacts with workers' compensation. Uh, who knows if that will be repealed? And if it's repealed, what will replace it? So if the uh, Trump administration continues its assault on Obamacare and replaces it with something else, we'll have to figure out how the interaction between uh, whatever new system we get and workers' compensation. Uh, we'll move forward. 
So I think those are three of the biggest issues that we will get moving forward. Yeah, and and you know Massachusetts has had medical marijuana now. I think it may have been passed two or three years ago. The dispensaries first opened maybe a year or two ago, and it's unsettled law in Massachusetts as to whether a workers' comp carrier uh, can be required to reimburse or pay for a pain, primarily pain management, through the use of cannabis. And among the issues on a couple of cases that are pending on appeal. Uh, has to do with the fact that these employers are insurers rather out of state, and it's a violation of federal law, and uh, they're concerned about their liabilities either using the mail or somehow across state lines from a state that doesn't legalize cannabis or marijuana to uh, to reimburse. So the, these are issues I think that are going to have to be sorted out in the courts. And, and I think uh, one other thing, Alan, if, if you don't mind my interrupting, yep. this sort of is also interacts with the other big issue, which I should have mentioned, is the opioid issue. Uh, and that's another big one. And when you see states putting an increased emphasis on getting workers' compensation or injured workers off of long-term usage of opioids, they necessarily need to go to alternative programs, either inpatient uh, rehabilitation programs or to less addictive type of pain relief methods. And one of those is obviously, potentially, medical marijuana. So it, it all ties in together. And the opioid issue is another one that is, it's been big for, for a while, but I think it will continue to be one of the hot topics across the country is weaning injured workers off of long-term use of opioids. And I know Massachusetts is really uh, taking the lead on that with their program that they've implemented up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're right. It it does intersect and in, in, in many ways positively for those of uh, those of us who might be proponents of the use of medical marijuana as an analgesic substitution for opioid. It's cheaper, it's safer, and it's less harmful to the uh, user and and her family. So, this is all what you know, what, Michael. This is all what makes practicing workers' comp interesting, special, and unique among other areas of law. It's it's always changing, sometimes not for the better, uh, oftentimes for the worse. And I want to congratulate you, our colleagues at Willig, and those of us who practice, whether we represent injured workers or represent insurers. Uh, we're in a unique area of the law, and it's always changing, evolving as the workplace evolves and as society evolves. So having said that, I want to thank you very much for being, I guess, a repeat guest on Workers' Comp Matters. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank our listeners for listening to us. Uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts if you can. And for those of you listening, please tune into our next show. Go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.